the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day, and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. I'm Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar-admitted attorney. I'm also a bankruptcy law specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you before, in addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, and my observations, and also my lifelong interest in business and money and finance, as well as through creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. However, I also practice some related fields, that is to say debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course taxation law. Now with these areas law of law as my reference point as they relate to personal, familial, community, and small business finance, I've spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, independence, and autonomy of women, persons of color, and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And as I've shared with you before, because I grew up as a military brat and also helped create one with my former spouse, I know firsthand how hard it can be economically for our citizen soldiers in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these service members um, separate from the service. I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And when the situation allowed itself to come to the fore, I sometimes am able at least to attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves, ourselves, the targets of, and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse you could ever imagine that's running rampant in our society today. So I'm coming to you again today to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals, families, 
communities, and small business owners. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provides you with at least an outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the quality qualified professional help I believe you need if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances or your other assets. Now, to recap, uh, when we got together last time, I share with you the fact that 30 years ago this month, I was a member of a delegation of American economists and consumer-focused financial services industry advocates that were invited to undertake a speaking tour of Japan with the goal of helping to educate the members of the Japanese political and business establishment, as well as the Japanese society at large, of the need for and offer some tools to enhance Japanese corporate responsibility especially for those corporations doing business in the United States, a country that certainly had a diverse populace based on ethnicity and race, certainly different from what you would find in Japan itself. Now, again, I was invited to participate in this uh, traveling roundtable because of my responsibility as a community advocate employed by the Law Offices of Public Advocates, a public interest law firm in San Francisco. Now, my job there as the executive director of the Greenlining Coalition was to create and lead a coalition, a California-wide coalition, of historically underserved community groups composed of women and persons of color who are banding together using the expansion of then-existing state and federal laws and statutes to fight for fair access to capital, credit, insurance, and political clout. All tangible assets needed to economically empower any community anywhere. Assets that are readily available to members of our overall Caucasian community, but assets intentionally withheld then and unfortunately continue to be withheld now from communities of color. As a result of my leadership and later laser focus on the issue, in 1991, the Greenlining Coalition negotiated historic Community Reinvestment Act of 1977 agreement with Union Bank of California, then a subsidiary of the Bank of Tokyo wherein the bank agreed to earmark at least $6 million a year to be used for working capital loans to minority and woman-owned businesses throughout California. And significantly, the bank also agreed to select of its own volition and choice and place on its board of directors at least one woman and two persons of color, all agreement uh, tools that it did ultimately do. Now, we members of the Japanese delegation collectively and sometimes on our own traveled all over Japan and met with groups large and small, including members of the Japanese Diet, as I share with you, that was the Japanese Parliament, some of the officers and directors at the Bank of Tokyo, the Japanese finance members, members of various business advocacy groups, 
uh, in, in Japan, also with academics and a community-based organization, including a group of African-American female executives living uh, in Japan, living and working in Japan. Now, we also met with groups of people who had and continue to be members of minority groups in Japan who, although ethnic Japanese, were treated as others, such as the Burakumen people, a former untouchable class in Japan, at the bottom of the tr traditional social hierarchy. And most significant to today's topic, I had the great honor to meet with a group of women who were then in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s that I had never heard of before. Women who, when they were still little girls, were either kidnapped outright or lured via chicanery into Japanese-controlled territories and ultimately onto combat front lines and once there forced to act as sex slaves for the Japanese Imperial Army, Navy, and Air Force who had occupied Korea beginning as early as 1910, but definitely during the time of the various wars in Asia, which took place between the 1930s and 1945, a group of women known as comfort women. Now, between 1931 and 1945, between 50,000 and 200,000 little girls and young women, some as young as 11 or 12, but generally not older than 17 or 18 when they were captured, and these are the comfort women, who were forced into sexual servitude in the Japanese military brothels set up near or actually on the front lines where they were systemically and systematically raped and abused by the Japanese military personnel. While well, they came from countries throughout East Asia, the vast majority, 80% or more, were from Korea. Now, those who survived the conditions on the front line, which were hard, lived their succeeding years in silence, bearing the physical and emotional scars of their enslavement for 50 years or more. Only in the early 1990s did the survivors begin to come forward and share their stories and demand justice. Just so happened to be when I was there. Since then, the survivors and other activists have fought to raise awareness and shape public opinion about the issue. They have demanded the Japanese government investigate its wartime conduct, admit its war crimes, punish those responsible, issue formal apologies and compensate victims. And just as we're having this issue back here in the United States now about blacks, they wanted to accurately educate future generations about this dark period of Japanese history. Now in 1992, following the announcement that a Japanese historian had discovered documentary evidence proving that the Japanese Imperial Army was involved in both um, establishing and operating these military brothels, the Prime Minister issued a formal apology to the Korean people and launched two investigations into the issues. In 1993, uh, the Chief Cabinet Secretary Kono issued a statement acknowledging that the Japanese military was both directly and indirectly involved in the establishment and management of what was known as comfort stations, and further acknowledged that in many cases the women were recruited against their will. 
Now, although the Japanese government has admitted its role in coercing women into service in these military brothels, it has never accepted legal responsibility nor agreed to pay reparation, a point that has remained contentious ever since. Now, some believe the government's position is based on because it considered these women mere prostitutes. So, when we come back, I'll share with you a high-level chronology of the various lawsuits against the Japanese government brought by the Korean women and or their descendants in their attempts to vindicate their rights. Please note that this chronology is based on my own review of the various scholarly works, memoirs, legal documents, uh, maintained by historians and universities, including the Columbia Law School Center for Korean Legal Studies, which is located at kls.law.columbia.edu. But first, we'll take a short break, and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of the State of Women and Girls 2021 edition using as my focal point a group of women that I first met 30 years ago this month on my speaking tour of Japan, the Korean comfort women who were used and abused as sex slaves by the Japanese Imperial Army that controlled most of Asia, including Korea, as early as 1910, but definitely between the 1930s through and to the end of World War II in 1945. So here's a high-level chronology of the various lawsuits against the Japanese government bought by the Korean women and or their descendants in their attempts to vindicate their rights. Now, the first such lawsuit took place on December 6, 1991, the month after I had left from the speaking tour. In that case, 35 members of the Association of Korean Victims filed a lawsuit in the Tokyo District Court against the Japanese government for violating their human rights during World War II. Uh, three of the plaintiffs were former comfort women, uh, including Kim Hak-soon, the first comfort woman to speak out publicly about her ordeal. Their demand, the plaintiffs, they demanded an official apology, compensation to the tune of $154,000 each, a thorough investigation of their cases, Revision of the Japanese school textbooks identifying this issue as part of the colonial oppression of the Korean people and building a memorial museum. Now, following the lawsuit, the Japanese government stated that it was prepared to consider the suffering of Korean women forced to provide sex to Japanese soldiers. And in March of 2001, the Tokyo District Court dismissed the compensation demand. The court held that the individual victims' claims for damages were unacceptable under international law. The court further held that the redress at issue was settled by a 1965 bilateral agreement between Japan and South Korea normalizing the relationships between those two countries. In 2001 March, plaintiffs appealed to the Tokyo High Court 
and in July of 2003, that court rejected the appeal and um, basically said that there was their right to demand compensation had expired because they said that the statute of limitations had expired. And in 2004, the Supreme Court in Japan uh, upheld the high court's rule and rejected the appeal. And the next lawsuit took place on Christmas Day in 1992. Here, 10 South Korean women filed a lawsuit in the Yamaguchi district in the Fuka, okay, I'm, I'm going to get this right, in the Fukuoka prefecture against the Japanese government seeking an official apology and a total of $6.66 million for the suffering they endured in World War II. Plaintiffs included three former comfort women. The plaintiff stated that the Japanese acts violated an international treaty banning forced labor and requested compensation for their physical and mental suffering. In April of 1998, the court ruled that compensation would be awarded to the comfort women and ordered the Japanese government to pay them, get this, $2,800 each. In May of 1998, the women appealed the, 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 the high court's uh, ruling demanding that a proper apology and just compensation be paid. In 2001, the court rejected the appeal and they also overruled the 1998 pittance of $2,800 apiece. The judge expressed sympathy for the plaintiff's frustration over the government's failure to enact a law to fully compensate the, uh, the victims, but that court held that the Constitution didn't require the state to implement a law. Sound familiar? Okay. And then in April of 2001, two of the comfort women appealed to the Japanese Supreme Court on the basis that the ruling that was made by the lower court in March of 2003, uh, that ruling and that appeal was rejected. And the Supreme Court also nullified that penance, $2,800 apiece to the three women, the three um, main plaintiffs. So at that point, again, the Japanese government didn't take any responsibility for anything. The next suit was filed in April of 1993. Son Shindo filed a lawsuit in the Tokyo District Court against the Japanese government, seeking an official apology, $1 million in compensation. And um, Sun was different in that she was a Korean who actually had become a citizen of Japan. And she was the first such um, citizen of Japan to sue Japan. So in October of 1999, the Tokyo District Court dismissed Song's claim, holding that under the current international law, an individual had no right to seek damages against a nation. The court ruled that Song's suffering could not be covered by the state's redress law because that law took effect in 1947 after the war had, World War II had ended and therefore did not apply to events that took place prior to that date. So in 1999, Song appealed to the Tokyo High Court and that court 
dismissed the appeal in November of 2000. In December of 2000, Song appealed to the Supreme Court of Japan, and they also dismissed the appeal, holding that Japan had no legal obligation to pay Song for her suffering because a 20-year statute of limitation had expired. Okay, and then the next case was filed in September of 2000. Here, 15 former Comfort women filed a class action suit in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And at that time, it was the only lawsuit on this matter ever filed in the United States. The plaintiffs argued that they were victims of human trafficking and had endured rape and torture. They demanded reparation and an official apology from the Japanese government. The Japanese government, in turn, filed a motion to dismiss the suit, arguing that the U.S. District Court of Appeals lacked jurisdiction over Japanese conduct and the government of Japan was immune to lawsuits under um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The district court here in the United States granted their Japanese motion based on sovereign immunity. So the plaintiff appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court, who also um, booted the case based on immunity, absolute immunity. And then in 2003, the plaintiff filed a cert petition to the Supreme Court, and after examining the lower court, the Supreme Court ruling that it was a non-justicable political question and inimical to the foreign policy interests of the United States and therefore, in February of 2006, the Supreme Court of the United States denied the cert and closed the case. Then another case was filed in November of 2015. Here, it was filed in the United States District Court for the Northern District of California, include, um, accusing defendants of conspiring to commit or aid in crimes against humanity. It was a class action accusing Japan and its major corporations of conspiring to force Korean women into sexual slavery during World War II. Shortly thereafter, United States District Judge William Alsip dismissed seven, the seven companies, including Mitsubishi, Toyota, and Nissan, finding claims against them were time-barred and also involved this non-justicable political question that would require the court to interpret treaties between two foreign governments. Okay. The women had based their allegations on corporations because they had um, uh, built the trains and vehicles and vessels that transported them from their homes to the front lines where they were used as sex slaves. However, ultimately, on June 29, 2016, the United States District Court for the Northern District of California dismissed the case. Then another couple of cases were filed in 2016. Uh, one on December 28, 2016, 11 survivors and 10 bereaved family members representing six other victims filed a suit against uh, Japan um, in Japan in, in Seoul, Korea this time. So they've sued in the United States, they've sued Japan, they're suing uh, in uh, Seoul, Korea against the government of Korea for having this agreement with Japan. 
and those cases were dismissed as well ultimately. Uh, the most recent one was dismissed in April of this year and the court upheld uh, Japanese state immunity against lawsuits. So, when we get together the next time, we're going to discuss this concept of sovereign immunity and if it, even if it currently does, should it continue to be allowed to take a superior position in the hierarchy of norms in our international community? And what are we going to do to make sure that sovereign immunity doesn't blunt out the rights that of people to be able to sue for crimes against humanity? Because if it does, that's a bad sign for all of us. And especially for women, we need to have the ability to go into court and protect our humanity and not be treated like broodmares. So, that's what we're going to talk about next time. So I'm going to leave it there for now, but always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we want to stay on the right side of the law, including laws that should allow injured parties to vindicate their rights, no matter how long it takes. But in the meantime, please get vaccinated, and if it's been six months or more from your second inoculation, please get your booster shots. And even if you have all your, short, your shots, but especially if you haven't had any, please don't let the holiday season fool you. Please keep your social distance masked up and wash your hands. Till next time, take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.